The story of the Bible, which we've been hearing kind of summarized through the words of Scripture this morning, is the grand story in which all other stories find their place. It's the grand story in which all the other stories fit in. And we see this in the Bible itself. If you've spent any time reading God's Word, you know that there's all sorts of stories. There's stories of individuals. Some of those have been mentioned. There's stories of whole nations. And, and many of these stories then come together to make up one story. And as we've sought to summarize it this morning, hopefully so you can hear that, that one story, this grand story. But if that's true, if it's true that the story of the Bible is the grand story in which all the other stories find their place, there's a couple implications of that, isn't there? One, well, it means, or it certainly implies, that this is true, the Bible's rooted in history. This couldn't be true if the Bible was not rooted in history. It records events that really happened. It foretold events that really did happen. It foretells events that really will happen in, in history, here on earth. So the Bible is not a Christian myth or Christian stories. These are things rooted in history. And so it can include all the other stories. But the second implication is, is more basic, isn't it? It means that its story, the Bible's story, is actually your story. That is, your life, the Bible would claim, only really makes sense within the larger story of which it is a part. The Bible's story. I uh, have uh, young children, and so I read children's stories fairly often and the story of goldilocks trying out the bear beds it only makes sense if you know you're in the story of goldilocks otherwise why is she in this house trying out bear beds you can't make sense of grown men spending all of their energy to strive to wear a green sport coat Unless you know something about the Masters Tournament and golf. And, and you can't make sense of that desire, which nothing in this world can satisfy, without the grand story and its explanation that you are actually made for another world. The Bible tells why we were made. The Bible tells us what went wrong. The Bible tells us who has made it right. And the Bible tells us how we might be remade. The story of the Bible, the grand story, is a story in which we find ourselves apart. We have a place in what God is doing to reconcile sinners to himself. All good stories have a climax, right? And in Goldilocks, it's probably them chasing her out of the house or something, right? There's a hinge. There's, there's a twist. It's not the end of the story, but it, it matters, right? It's the turning point. And so it's not surprising that the turning point in the Bible story is the turning point in, in all of history. And it's why it matters for you. It's the turning point in the story of which your life is a part. Everything in a good story is related to that hinge, that turning point, the climax, everything's leading to it or, or coming from it. Well, that's turning point, no surprise, 
in the grand story, the climax of everything, is Easter. It's the Easter story. It's the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It is, in a word, resurrection. Is what the angels said. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. On Easter, I want to make sure that you hear the message. There's a lot of words that have been said already. There'll be a few more before we're done. I want to make sure you hear the good news of the Bible, plain and clear. God, through Jesus's substitutionary death and victorious resurrection, is providing a way to reconcile sinners to himself so that by turning from their sin and trusting in him, they might be forgiven. He is the hinge upon which history turns. And the Bible would actually say he is the hinge upon which your destiny turns. So how is your life relating to the climax of the story of which your life is a part? The resurrection. This morning, I want to consider just five verses with you here from Acts chapter four. Just five verses along three points. I'll give them to you now and I'll give them to you as we go. The one rejected, the one raised, the one way. As Acts 4 begins, and we'll read our passage in just a minute, uh, Peter is, is still addressing people that have gathered at this portico called Solomon's there in Jerusalem. The book of Acts happens just in the weeks and months following the resurrection and now the ascension of Christ. And we know from the beginning of Acts chapter 3 that the people are gathered there because, well, Peter's just healed a guy. And it's a guy they all knew. He was the lame guy from, from the temple. He was always parked at the same gate. They knew who he was. And, and that lame guy is now healed. And so they follow Peter to hear him at Solomon's portico. But it's getting late at night. And as chapter 4 begins, we learn that these religious leaders, and he notes in chapter 4, verse 1, Luke does, that the Sadducees are there. We know from elsewhere that the Sadducees were this religious group that did not believe in the resurrection. They are all greatly annoyed. You see the words there in verse 2. They're, they're perturbed. They are ticked at Peter. They're upset because... Well, why? Well, Peter has just raised up. That's the language. Just raised up a lame man. And now he's preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Peter is saying, the hinge has turned. <laughs> we're, we're on the back. We are in the resurrection age. That event that happened a few weeks ago in Jerusalem, not far from here, That matters, and it still matters, and it'll matter in 2,000 years. So what do the religious leaders do? Well, they use their power to try to arrest him. They take him into custody. But it's nighttime, so nothing's going to happen that day. And so you look there in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers gather again. And we have all of the religious rulers gathered here together. They gather to, to question. To question Peter, look at verse five of Acts chapter four. It says on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. We read that and we just think, okay, 
But those two words are significant. Gathered together. Those words matter. We'll see why in just a minute. And they begin to interrogate Peter and John. Let's pick up in verse 7. You listen while I read Acts chapter 4 verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. Here's their question. By what power or by what name did you do this? That is this healing of this lame beggar. Tell us the source of your power. Right? They're seeking to confirm what Peter had already made clear back in the time of the healing when he said, in the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. But they want confirmation now. And listen to Peter's response, beginning in verse 8. These are the five verses. Let me read them to you. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Peter said, filled with the Holy Spirit to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Point number one, the one rejected. The one rejected. Luke records this rejection for us to to really notice through two Old Testament quotes. The first quote uh, comes from Psalm 118. You see it there in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which which has become the cornerstone. The second quote is from Psalm 2. And we'll see this down in in verse 25 and 26 of the same chapter. You see the quote there. Later they're praying. Why Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were, note it, gathered together. Gathered together. Let's consider this second one first here. Back in chapter 4, verse 5, Luke Luke uses the words gathered together to describe the Jewish leaders who have gathered to interrogate the apostles, Peter and John. And then later in the chapter, he quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 2, about the Lord's anointed, where the Gentiles, the kings of the earth, are what? They're gathered together. Do you note that? I think Luke's doing that intentionally. He's saying it's not just the Gentiles that have rejected the Messiah. It's also the Jewish leaders. You religious leaders are amongst those gathered against God's anointed. It's not just Herod. It's not just Pontius Pilate. But it's you all that are rejecting the Messiah. Look down at chapter 4 verse 27. This is how the Psalm 2 is summarized. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the people of the peoples of Israel. So back in chapter four, verse five, Luke wants us to see Jesus rejection prophesied in Psalm two is being fulfilled while the religious leaders reject the apostles. And this rejection by those who don't believe in the resurrection is God's means of vindicating his son as the anointed king of Psalm 2 who is resurrected. Oh, the irony. He's using the Sadducees who deny the resurrection to affirm his anointed as the resurrected king. But there's a, another quote. Let's go to the second one there down in verse 11. This comes from Psalm 118 verse 22, which reads, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Of course, the image is simple, right? So you have this cornerstone. This would have been a large stone placed at the corner of the foundation initially, out of which you would have built the foundation of the building. Normally, the, the builders would look at the stones they had to choose from, and they would choose the right stone to be the cornerstone. Here, the builders have rejected some particular stone because it's not suitable for that. It's not suitable to be the cornerstone. But here, Psalm 118, and, and here Peter is saying they were wrong. The builders got it wrong. Psalm 118 Israel is likened to this stone. The other nations thought little of Israel, rejected. God said, no, I'm going to use my nation as the cornerstone for all I'm doing in history. And here in the New Testament, especially here in Peter's reply, the builders, now these religious Jewish leaders have rejected Jesus. They're no wiser than the nations. This rejection of Jesus at his crucifixion, oh, the wonder, has resulted in him becoming the cornerstone, the cornerstone by his resurrection. Cornerstone is a foundation piece, isn't it? You've got to get it right. You've got to get your angles right. You've got to get it in place. It's got to be immovable. It's got to be solid. Everything hinges on getting the corner in place. Earlier, we used the image of the, the climax or the hinge or the turning point. And here, Peter says... It's the stone, the stone you've got to get right, the stone you've got to put in place upon which all the building lies. We know from history, many, both Jewish and Gentile leaders rejected Jesus, led to his crucifixion. He died then in our place for our sins, but this led to his resurrection and to him becoming the cornerstone. So the one rejected becomes in the place of prominence. Jesus' words in Luke 20 make the image even more striking. So Jesus takes the same quote from Psalm 118. Here's the implication Jesus draws. He looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus then says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus says, reject the stone at your own peril. He will be your king or he will be your judge. The one upon whom you can build your life can also crush you. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus as the stone. They rejected the stone. It's not suitable for the purpose of 
building, this temple imagery. And today, rejection sounds a little different. It sounds more polite in our modern age, doesn't it? Jesus just isn't for everyone. For some, but just not for me. It's not angry. It's, I'll pass. He just doesn't suit me personally. But friends, rejection, no matter how polite, is rejection still. Rejected as unsuitable, perhaps, to actually trust, to live for. Unsuitable to to look to for real joy and satisfaction. Unsuitable to, to sell all with joy and follow. Unsuitable to suffer for. Unsuitable to serve as king. Point number one, the one rejected. Now point number two, the one raised. The one raised. The beggar back at the beginning of chapter three was raised up, but it was only from the ground, not from the dead. Peter here is clear back in verse 10. God raised Jesus from the dead. It's the heart of the issue. It's the reason why the religious leaders are so upset. And it's the culmination of the Christian story. So as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give about a fourth of the recounting of Jesus' life to his final week. So they're not biographies as we typically think of them. Right? There's a, a birth narrative, there's some teaching, and then there's an emphasis, a, a, a whole fourth of their biography, if you will, is on his final week. But of course, what else also sets them apart is they actually include his life after his death. How unusual of a biography that is. In the book of Acts, where we have find ourselves here, the resurrection is significant. It's predominant in all the sermons. So as the apostles want to teach about Jesus, they don't go first to the Sermon on the Mount and his moral teaching. They go right for the point. You crucified him. He is risen. A bunch of people saw him and then he went up to heaven. Jesus is alive. And so the disciples become apostles are willing to suffer For Jesus, the timid have become bold because of the resurrected one. So look later in chapter 4, verse 33. We have these little summaries throughout the book of Acts. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. They were willing to give their lives to testify that Jesus was alive. If he wasn't, and they knew it, why would they? You see that quote in your bulletin. Maybe you saw that. C.S. Lewis wrote, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Jesus' resurrection is the hinge. It's the climax. And so it gives them boldness. That's one of the key themes in this chapter. So right after our passage in verses 13 and 14, they perceived the boldness of Peter and John in the prayer that begins in chapter Uh, 4 beginning in verse 24 they're praying what for more boldness and of course the lord answers their prayer 
They continued to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is true, yes, and worth building your life upon like a cornerstone, yes. But it's not just the foundation for life, it's the foundation for a type of life. A bold life. A life built on Jesus coming out of the grave will have some boldness to it, won't it? If we really believe that Jesus has conquered death and in him we have no reason now as his children, as believers, to fear our own death, we will have boldness and we will follow their examples in praying for even more boldness. Jesus may never call us, church family, to die for him. But it's really clear that he's called us to live for him. And that living is a bold living. The resurrection turned timid disciples into bold apostles. And it still today changes fear-filled sinners to bold believers. So what makes sense of Christian boldness in the book of Acts? Nothing but the resurrection of Jesus. The one raised. Which leads to our third point. The one way. Look again at verse 12. Peter is on trial for proclaiming a message that he takes the stand and proclaims yet again. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation. There is salvation. The story of the Bible, as we've heard already in the words of Scripture, is about God, the pre-existent one, creator of all, absolutely holy, making his good creation, making man in his image calling us to live in communion with him. But it's also the story of of the fall into sin, of man rebelling against God and saying, no, I'm not going to live under you, submitted to you. I'm going to be king. I'm going to be my own king. I'm going to live life my way. So we've rebelled. We've sinned. We've not just broken God's law. We've said, I'll make my own. Thank you very much. And God cares Enough about us to take our rebellion seriously. So we are under the just wrath of God. We need to be, there's the word, 412, saved, rescued. There is salvation, verse 12 begins and then it ends. We must be saved. And the emphasis here in Peter's little sermonette on trial is there's only one way. The one way is the only way, and that it's through Jesus. Since Jesus is the only name under heaven, that is in all of the earth, he is the only way. I love what he says later in the chapter. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I can't not talk about, it's impossible for me not to talk about Jesus. I've seen him. I've heard him. He's changed me. He'll change you. There is no other name, not only under heaven, but among men. Peter's point is clear. Jesus is the only way of salvation. The only way. 
There's not many ways up the same mountain. We're not kind of all feeling our way to God. No, God has spoken and the resurrection vindicates Jesus as his Messiah, as the Savior of the world. He is the only way. So Jesus could say, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or John 3, you know, verse 16. Listen to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Or John later, when he writes one of his letters, says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Or perhaps most clearly, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter knew that message, and he preached that message with boldness. He said, there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. We can hear that and think, well, isn't that narrow or exclusive? Friends, it's absolutely good news. (laughs) Which is better? Everyone trying to find their own way, hoping theirs is the one? Or God revealing the one true way and calling us all to it? He has told us the way and it is through Jesus, Jesus alone, God through Christ, reconciling sinners to himself so that all who repent, all who believe can be forgiven of their sins. The punishment due us as rebels has fallen on Christ, our substitute. And he, having been crucified, died and was buried and on the third day rose again triumphant and has ascended to the Father and is returning. And the only right response is to bow the knee, turning from sin and trusting in Christ alone to redeem. As Peter makes so clear there in chapter 4, verse 12, it is by Jesus The one way, the only way that we must be saved. The one rejected was raised and he is the only way. Friends, the only one raised from the dead is the only way back to God. So is your life rightly related to the climax of the story of which your life is a part? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that our Savior is not in some tomb somewhere. We haven't any reason to fear that he will be found. But we have reason to bow the knee because the one proclaimed to be king, the one who claimed to be king, the one preached as king is returning as king. So, Father God, I, I, I pray for those here this morning who have not turned from their sin and trusted in Christ the way, the only way. I pray that you would save them. Father, I pray for your church that you would help us to reflect on the resurrection and respond with appropriate boldness. That we would be like Peter 
it's impossible for us not to share this good news.